Last month, I was checking the newsroom mail when I saw an envelope that didn't look like any of the others. At the top left-hand corner, it read Colorado Department of Corrections, followed by a name, an inmate number, and an address for a prison in tiny Ordway, Colorado. And it was addressed to me. Dear Aaron Udell, this is from him. I'm in receipt of your letter and your interest in speaking with me in regards to my dear friends Julie and Rosemary Mata. Due to the number of it's from the man who is currently serving two life sentences for the murders of Rosemary Mata and Julia Mata de los Santos, and he was agreeing to answer my questions. If you remember from the last episode, I left off with an arrest. The arrest of a man on January 5th, 1979, in connection with the Mata murders. But that didn't end up being the man who was convicted of the crimes. That isn't the man whose letter I was just reading from. The man who was ultimately convicted of the murders is named Santos Romero Jr. And in 1979, he was a key witness in the case. So how exactly do you go from being a key witness to a key suspect and ultimately convicted? It's a long story. And I'll be telling it here in this episode of The Way It Was, Inside the Mata Murders, Part 2. Rosemary was a wonderful person. She was very, um, very gentle-natured, very sweet, very pretty girl. Um. When I interviewed Dolores, Rosemary and Julia's older sister, I asked her who else she thinks I should talk to to learn more about them. And she gave me a name, Sandy. That's whose voice you just heard. Sandy was one of Rosemary's really close friends in Fort Collins. They worked together in CSU's personnel department. And since I wanted to know more about the sisters' social lives and the time leading up to their deaths, I reached out to Sandy. She didn't want me to include her last name, by the way. After 40 years, this stuff still terrifies her. She, uh, even though she had, you know, she was pretty and she had kind of a low self-esteem, but she was, um, she was uh, just, just very smart. Very beautiful person. In talking to Sandy, I found something oddly refreshing. While she knew Rosemary well and remembers the weeks leading up to her friend's death, Sandy and her family also moved away from Fort Collins about a week before the murders. She didn't even know that they had died until she came back to visit a little later and was talking to an old neighbor. Isn't it awful, the neighbor said, what happened to those two girls? What girls, Sandy replied. When she found out, she called the police immediately and told them that she was friends with Rosemary. She would be interviewed and later brought in from out of state to testify. But outside of that, Sandy didn't really seem to keep up with the case. While it unfolded in local news, Sandy was living several states away. Her memories didn't seem to be shaped around the ensuing drama of it all, 
They were instead kind of frozen in time. Back to the spring of 1978, when she was hanging out with Rosemary and Julia. Yeah, they did a lot together, a lot together. And, um, you know, this is this is when I think they, they met some guy that uh, they had told me about. Um, and apparently um, he... He really liked Rosemary, but uh, Julie really liked him, and Rosemary wasn't sure how to handle it because she didn't want to hurt her sister's feelings. Sandy said she was supposed to meet this guy. Rosemary and Julia were going to bring him over to her house for dinner one night. But nearing their move out of state, Sandy said she had to cancel the plans at the last minute. The, this is the strange part about it is they had come over one night, and it... I had asked them how things went. They said that they were both going to meet him on Friday and they were going to go out together. And I guess it was either Julia's or Rosemary's birthday. I think it was Rosemary's birthday. And they were going to go out and celebrate. And uh, that was the night they were murdered. That was the night that uh, they were supposed to meet him. Um, and I'm and sure you've racked your, your brain over and over again about details about who he oh, could you have would, been. You Do you remember anything? Yeah. Uh, you know, honestly, all I remember is that uh, Rosemary said was very handsome, very Indian-looking, um, had a very unusual name, and she told me the name, but she made me promise never to repeat it. Sandy said Rosemary told her this guy was a little older, and that's why she didn't want anyone, especially Dolores, to know. She doesn't remember that name now, of course. She does remember that he gave Rosemary a necklace. Sandy saw it when Rosemary dropped her purse and it fell out. And she remembered one more thing, too. But, you know, she did like this guy. She thought he was really nice. She said that he came from Greeley, Colorado. And um, and he had, a, he had a brand new car the night that uh, they got in this car. I guess it was a brand new car. She said he was getting this brand new car, and uh, I don't know if so I had a license plate on it or not. But you remember her telling you that he was getting a, a new car? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that he was from Greeley, Colorado, and I, I remember that. This fits into Neil Compton's single killer theory, but in early 1979, it became clear that Neil Compton's single killer theory was not the only angle being investigated by the Larimer County Sheriff's Office. If you remember from the last episode, everything in this case changed on January 5th, 1979, the date of the first ever arrest in connection with the Mata murders. It was a transitional time for the Larimer County Sheriff's Office. The longtime Sheriff Bob Watson had been in the job for eight years and in local law enforcement for more than 30. But this time, when he ran for re-election in 1978, he lost. He didn't even make it to the election. He was stunned in the Republican primary by a young Fort Collins police patrolman named Jim Black. Black went on to win the election and served as the Larimer County Sheriff from 1979 until 1991. And as Watson was wrapping up his time there, Black was planning on being sworn in on January 9th. Uh, Friday night before I was to be sworn in on Tuesday, I got a phone call that Sheriff Watson was interrogating a suspect in the Mata murders, had stepped outside his office and dropped dead of a heart attack. Yep, 
That story is insane. Watson, according to reports in the Colorado Inn, had been suffering from heart problems and poor health toward the end of his final term. But with the Mata murders unsolved on his watch, he hit the investigation extra hard in his final weeks. Watson's son, Lieutenant Rick Watson, had started an investigation into the case separate from the chief of investigations, Neil Compton. Compton, if you remember, had been investigating the crime under a single killer theory. But Rick Watson, at some point, had been led to a man in the Mata's neighborhood, a house painter in his early 20s named Santos Romero Jr. And Santos just couldn't stop talking about the case. So after interviewing Santos, including twice under hypnosis, the young lieutenant used the man's statements and arrested Santos's brother, 23-year-old Porfirio Romero. It was Porfirio who was being interrogated when Sheriff Watson died of his heart attack. And on January 7th in the Colorado Inn, it was announced that Porfirio Romero had been arrested in the case. Soon, a second man, Santos and Porfirio's friend, 18-year-old Joe Salas, had also been arrested. According to news reports, Santos had apparently told Lieutenant Watson that he'd overheard his brother and friend talking about wanting to go rape the Mata sisters that night. He told him that Porfirio and Joe had followed the women to the Northern Hotel and left with them that night, leaving Santos behind. Over the years, that story would change, and the image of Santos would as well. Depending on who you ask, he's either known as an innocent, if not troubled man, whose obsession with solving the Mata murders garnered him all the wrong attention. Or he's thought of as a willing participant in the murders of Julie and Rosemary. Some even think it's possible that he's covering up for more people who were involved. Anyway, do you guys remember Liam Rooney? He's that reporter I mentioned in the first episode, the one who gave me his taped interview with Neil Compton. He remembers the arrests of Porphy and Joe really well. And <clears throat> when I, I heard about the arrests and of uh, Porfirio Romero and Joe Salas. Like everybody else, I read about that in the paper. And I just thought, we should just string those guys up to a light post. I was just really all for capital punishment, all for punishing these people very severely, and um, didn't, I hated to even see us get into like a big long legal mumble jumbo just, you know, frontier justice, just go ahead. You wanted to see someone pay. Yeah, yeah. especially those guys. And then and then the attitudes, the things that were being um, uh, attributed to the scene. Um, and this is all coming from Sanos Romero. And then it turns out, which I find out shortly after I start covering the case as a reporter, that all of this just came from Sanos Romero's imagination. None of it matched the crime scene. What, when you say that, what do you mean? What came from his imagination? What details? The whole entire scenario of there being uh, a group of guys who may or may not have planned this, who said we're going to go rape and kill some chicks, or actually we're going to go rape some chicks to teach them a lesson. That was sort of the initial uh, thing that Santos came up with. But the fact is, is that Santos was just obsessed with the case, that he wanted to be involved 
and by 1979, Santos was officially involved. As Porphy and Joe faced charges in the Mata sisters' murders, Santos became the prosecution's key witness. But the preliminary hearing for Porphy started, and Santos was nowhere to be found. He failed to appear for Porphy's hearing, and then Joe's. The two were dismissed, cut loose, and their charges were dropped, at least for the moment. The month prior to me taking office, every Saturday and Sunday, we met in the county commissioner's office and interviewed deputies. That's Jim Black again. Remember, when Porphy and Joe's trials were dismissed, Black was only a few months into his first term as Larimer County Sheriff. And he'd made some promises. One of them was to scale down the office's investigative side and beef up its patrol division. The Sheriff's Department became an investigative agency, and their patrol agency really suffered because of it. Mm -hmm. There were just two or three deputies on the road, as I recall, but they had eight, nine, ten investigators. And every in, uh, the big program back then was Miami Vice, and everybody who worked in the Sheriff's Department Investigation Division seemed to have a leather coat and sunglasses, is what we on the police department talked about. The jail was also in disrepair, Black said, and the Estes Park Town Board had just kicked the Sheriff's Office out of its longtime Estes Park location in the town hall. Also, a fleet of new patrol cars were needed. So, for almost two years during this time, there isn't a peep about the Mata murders. Black assured reporters that the case was being reviewed periodically, but an investigator wasn't involved with it on a daily basis. That changed in January of 1981. Del Bean, who was my investigative captain, came in and he said, there's a guy by the name of Phil Wilson who's a heck of an investigator who'd like to move out here. And so we brought Phil out, and that was the first case he worked on. And after about three months, he came in and said, Sheriff, I think we can solve this case. A few months ago, I found Phil Wilson online and tracked him down. He's in his home state of Indiana now, but in 1980 and early 1981, he was living, not far from Fort Collins, in Wyoming. How, why I got contacted by Larimer County was that I had worked several homicide cases in Cheyenne, Larimer County, Wyoming, and it was a great deal of success, I, I guess you have to say. And so I, I guess I built a reputation. Other, prior to that time, I had no knowledge of the murders at all. I mean, it's only 40 miles away, but it might as well have been halfway across the United States. He said he started this new investigation into the Mata murders by going over case files, reading and reading and reading. And at some point, he spoke to Santos Romero's former wife, who told him some things that grabbed his attention. According to newspaper articles, Santos had allegedly told his then-wife that he remembered washing blood from his hands in the creek along Buckhorn Road after killing Rosemary and Julia. In court later on, she'd also testify that Santos told her a story about how he'd killed the sisters on Buckhorn Road that night, 
drove their bodies around town in the trunk of his car, and then returned them to the spot they'd been killed. Wilson also talked to men who lived in the same neighborhood as the Matas, Romeros, and Solaces, including a man named Johnny Martinez. Martinez would later testify that he overheard Porfirio, Joe, and Santos mention a plan to sexually assault the sisters. He also said he'd been an unknowing participant in the crime himself, that he had passed out in the back of one of their cars and came to in a mountainous area. He then allegedly heard a woman's screams and a man talking. Then, Wilson, who was splitting time between Fort Collins and Wyoming, tracked Santos down in Laramie and talked to him himself. Uh, I got Santos to say a lot of things that, that uh, in Laramie, before I brought him back to Fort Collins, that were what, short of a confession, but what we call a statement against interest. In other words, he seemed to know too much to uh, indict himself with his own words. Sorry, this recording was done over the phone and is a little shaky. But to fill in that last part, Wilson said, indict himself with his own words. Anyway. When I interrogated him, I, uh, well, this sounds a little bad. One of the techniques was to close in on the, on the subject being interrogated to the point you can get your hands on them, lay your hands on their legs. It, it, it's, it's basically exerting dominance over submission. And I did that, and it was successful. He admitted that he had seen and talked to the girls that night at the Northern. He uh, admitted that uh, to me that, that the statements I heard that he and Solace and Porfirio had uh, wanted to take the girls down and notch her tooth, thought they were too big for their britches, so to speak. John, he admitted that he told, uh, this is the part I'm just now coming back to my mind, he told, he came to see John Martinez one night, and he wanted some garbage bags, and John Martinez testified to this, he wanted some garbage bags to cut up some bodies, quote unquote. I, I hit him with that, and accused him of that, and he deny it. He didn't, he didn't confirm it, but he didn't deny it either. That's pretty incriminating evidence. So, with these statements against interest, Wilson was able to secure Santos Romero's arrest in mid-March 1981. Soon, Porfirio and Joe Salas were also arrested. Santos would be tried first, and separately from Porfi and Joe, in early 1982. Porfirio's attorney this time around was a man named David Wymore, then head of the Larimer County Public Defender's Office. And Wymore, now in private practice in Boulder, has some strong words about the case against Porfirio in 1981 and 82. It was, it was my, my first full-frame job up in Fort Collins. Wymore points to something I've heard a lot about, the unreliability of Santos's memory and the thought that he was somehow paranoid or delusional, and that's where all these stories and claims were coming from. 
I do have to note, though, that Santos at one point did plead innocent by reason of insanity, but later withdrew that plea after three psychiatrists found him to be competent and sane, according to old Coloradoan reports. Well, you know, you got Santos down there saying, my brother was involved and I've had this dream and blah, blah, blah. You know, I have this memory. You know, but it's all, it's so chunky. It's so disconnected. It's so, you know, that any real reliable investigator would look and say, this guy's a nut. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, I mean, it was a sensational homicide. These girls were just snaps off and murdered. I think they were killed with rocks. It was horrible. And it was a high-profile homicide, and there was a lot of fear. So, you know, you got a guy coming in and said, my brother did it, off you go. You know, case done, right? Mm-hmm. All done. All done here. You know, if, if Santos Rivera told me it was sunny at noon on the 4th of July, I'd go out and look. Andy Gavelden, another attorney in the public defender's office who was working with Wymore, took issue with something else. Gavelden, you see, had represented Porfirio when he was first arrested in 1979. You know, when Santos didn't show up to testify and the charges were dropped? Well, Gavelden also grew up in the same neighborhood as Joe and Porfi and Santos. He went to school with some of the Mata sisters' older brothers. Uh, one advantage that, that I had versus the Sheriff's Department is that I had access to the community. They did not. Their rapport with the community was absolute zero. So any information they got, it was very limited. And the only information they could get is by pressure. Because what happened during that case is anybody who was alleged to be involved or was peripherally involved, they were brought in and interrogated. And we're told that either you tell us what we want to know or we're going to charge you. And they did. If there was a witness in our, there was a number of witnesses in our cases that were charged, even though they were witnesses in the case, but they were charged. And, uh, but they testified anyway on behalf of the defense. And there's one more thing, one big thing I have to mention. During Porfirio and Joe's trial in early March 1982, it was discovered that volumes of documents were missing from the case file. Rick Watson estimated that 200 pages of his reports were gone, and Neil Compton testified that 90% of his were missing. They were missing, along with four other investigators' reports, a clay bust of Neil Compton's suspect from 1978, and a cast of a rock impression from the crime scene, from both the Larimer County Sheriff's Office and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation in Denver. At the time, Sheriff Black questioned publicly in the paper whether the files ever even existed, since they were missing from multiple agencies. But, and I don't mean to jump around here, one day after the trials, he got a phone call. Well, one of the other things that we found out was I got a call from a person west of Loveland out on West First Street who said, Sheriff, there's a bunch of documents in this shed of mine. Um, and a couple of guys from the Sheriff's Department, I won't mention their names, uh, had asked if they could put some stuff there. And we went out and found some records. This would have been in the early 80s, Black estimated. And while the documents were for several different cases, they did include files from the Mata murders, he said. And so there were several boxes of documents. Mm -hmm. And it was my thought, and it's just conjecture on my part, that uh, 
some people wanted to try and solve it themselves, and so they took some of those cases. And of course, when we came in, we didn't know what we had, what we were supposed to have, mm -hmm. and what we didn't. Now, with everything being electronic, that wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. But back then, everything was pencil and paper and, and that kind of thing. When we found it, uh, uh, Phil and I went down there, and mm -hmm. a couple other guys, and as we looked at it, we went, oh my gosh, and realized stuff that we were looking for. Because of the time and the fact that it had not been kept under lock and key, most of it was not any good. By the time this discovery was made, the trials of Santos, Porphy, and Joe had already happened. But, Wymore said, even with those files missing during Porphy and Joe's trial, he had a secret weapon in Andy Gabaldon. Since Gabaldon represented Porfirio in that first trial in 1979, he'd also hung on to some of the files from it, including a page of Porfirio's original statement to police. My defense strategy was to, <laughs> I'll tell you, it was a pretty good strategy. I'd, um, I'd use the original investigation and cross-examine these guys uh, the cops and the DAs would act like they didn't never heard of it before and uh, complain that they were surprised by me having the original reports. And uh, it just became a parade of unreliable liars and manipulators. On January 27, 1982, Santos Romero was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit sexual assault. On March 3rd, Porfirio Romero and Joe Salas were acquitted of all charges. Less than a week later, Santos was sentenced to two life terms in prison. It wasn't quite over for Santos yet. In 1985, he successfully appealed the decision. The argument was that Santos had been subjected to hypnotic interviews in December 1978 and January 1979 and that he had expressed doubt and confusion over the implication of these interviews. So to allay these doubts, a written agreement with the DA's office had been obtained, in which the prosecution promised to grant him immunity for his quote-unquote passive involvement in the homicide. So in 1985, the Colorado Court of Appeals overturned the conviction, but the state Supreme Court reversed that ruling in 1987. And Romero, as you know, remains in prison. When Santos wrote to me last month, he agreed to answer some of my questions. And in those answers, he described Rosemary and Julia as his friends, girls he'd grown up with. He describes his life in prison, days taken up with menial tasks, TV, and his Bible. When asked if he's currently represented by an attorney, he said, I have finally been blessed with someone who has discovered much and taken a strong interest in assisting me with my legal grounds. He said he has a legal interest in establishing his innocence, but when asked specific questions about the case, he referred me to the Coloradoan series he was quoted in in 1989. Julie and Rosemary were my dear friends whom I loved and respected very much, he wrote. It remains my belief and prayer their murders will be solved and the rightful individual or individuals will be brought to justice. David Wymore has been quoted before in more recent articles, 
saying this would be a good case for advanced DNA testing. You may have been wondering about that too. These women were handled, he said. Rosemary's clothes were stripped off of her. She had been dragged. There would be DNA left behind, right? I'm not sure. In 2008, after Fort Collins man Tim Masters was exonerated in a murder case through DNA testing, the then Larimer County DA, Larry Abramson, reviewed 36 old convictions to see if new DNA technologies could help those defendants. He found none. He also told the Denver Post at the time that he didn't include Santos Romero's case in the review because he had confessed. I double-checked with the DA's office to see if that was a possibility in the future, and was told that since that article ran in 2008, Santos hadn't filed any motions requesting DNA testing, and that in 2010, the trial exhibits in the case, meaning the evidence presented at trial, was destroyed. So what does that mean for Santos Romero, or for the future of this case, if there ever was a future? Again, I'm not sure. This case affected so many people. That's probably the only thing I can be absolutely sure of. It fractured a community. It completely halted lives. It changed how Dolores Mata, Rosemary and Julia's sister, did anything. I remember after that, when I would meet somebody, um, you know, in the bar. Mm -hmm. I remember I would call Josie and say, Josie. I just met this guy. His name is this. Here's his license plate number. If something happens to me, you tell the cops. Every date I went on after that, I would call Josie and have her write down his name, what I knew about him, and his license plate number of his car. For years, I did that. It shaped the rest of Maggie, Julia's daughter's life. It completely changed how she would grow up. No, oh, I mean, like, even growing up, my dad would never let us go anywhere. Really? Never, ever. Never. Yeah. If we asked him to go somewhere, he'd be like, nope. If, if we went to hang out anywhere, it was usually with the family or mm-hmm. it was um, uh, during the day. I mean, it would even be, can we go to the mall? Well, for how long? With who? And, That's you know, what Stephen did, was, yeah, to his know, kids. Every time he was, no, 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 no. And he never, never, never. He was always so overprotective. I said in the beginning of the last episode that the reason I was originally drawn to these murders was because people on different sides of it still felt it was unresolved. Forty years later, some people still want answers. They want closure. Closure in what is technically, legally, a closed case. It fascinated me. But as I kept researching, As I kept collecting interviews and information, I realized something. I can't get those answers. I can't get that closure. What I can do is make sure more people know the names Rosemary Mata and Julia Mata de los Santos. I can make sure people knew that, yes, they died up that dark dirt road on that tragic night 40 years ago. But they also lived. If you listen to these episodes, you now know that Rosemary had a John Travolta obsession. Julia had a daughter. And they both had a sister named Dolores, who fiercely loved them, who still talks about them, 
and even sometimes talks to them. Yes, there are still questions, but in a case like this, there probably always will be. I'm Erin Udell, and you just listened to the 15th episode of The Way It Was, a podcast podcast. Thanks so much for sticking with me on this one. I hope you were able to take something away from this look inside the Mata Murders. <laughs>